The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 37. If you're using the Black Bible in front of you, you will find this on page 816. Please stand as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we said a couple times now, this big middle chunk, almost 10 chapters of Luke's gospel from basically Luke 9 to Luke 19 is all about discipleship. We said you can divide this middle chunk into four sections. 
We're actually on the, the, the back end of the first section. It went from Luke 9, verse 51, and it goes down to chapter 10, verse 37 here. In this first section, we've sort of highlighted the theme as this idea of proclaiming the Savior's kingdom. What is this about? What does this look like? And so we've seen what it looks like to follow the Savior. We looked like, we've seen what it looks like to proclaim the Savior. That was last week. And this morning, we're going to see what it looks like working for the Savior. What can we learn in light of the 72 disciples who left out last week to go proclaim? They were working for the Savior. They come back, and Jesus is going to speak. And he's going to speak some pretty clear and some pretty, some pretty hard things here um, to wrap our minds around, some deep things, but some true things about what it looks like for you, me, missionary disciples, compassionate laborers. Like, what is this whole... Uh, working for the Savior look like? How do we process this idea of when, when some receive and some reject the gospel? And like, what does it look like, the kind of headspace, the mindset we're to have in regards to these things? That's what we have before us this morning. If you want to put it in a nutshell and encapsulate these verses this morning, you can summarize it like this. The main idea is that working for the Savior is a joyful thing. We're going to see the word joy and rejoicing show up all over the place. It's a joyful blessing. Jesus says, blessed are you to see the things that you have seen. It's a joyful blessing, though, that will also expose hearts to gospel need. That's really what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see someone who thinks that they know what it means to be right with God, seeking to justify themselves, and Jesus lays a parable on this lawyer in order to help him see that, yes, you have right words, but you actually don't have right belief. You know Bible answers, but you're actually lacking the very thing that you know. And so we're going to see that working for the Savior is a joyful blessing that will expose hearts to gospel need. So we're going to pause, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to empower this time, and then we'll get into the text. So let's pray. Father, we ask you to move and work in such a way during this time right now that you would receive the glory you're worthy to receive. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do right now what you love to do, which is to put the spotlight solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would help, help me to articulate this message that as I do so, the message would affect me, the messenger. That also as I do so, you would help brothers, sisters, sitting, listening, to receive these words as what they are. Truth, life-giving, sin-exposing, Gospel exalting, mercy exalting, words that point us to Jesus Christ and our absolute dire need for Him. Father, would you tune our hearts and tune our minds now to receive these words, not because I'm saying them, 
Because truly, these words are the words of life from the God of life who points to the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So tune our hearts to receive and not only receive, but to apply and obey so that we would walk out of here truly changed after having heard the words of the gospel preached to us. Christ, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. I'm going to stitch together some words and some thoughts real quick, but to get yourself in the, to get yourself in the right headspace and what it was, I want you to imagine you're a part of the 72. These are no name, we don't know who they are, unknown missionary disciples. They've answered the call, they're following the Savior, they're denying themselves, they're picking up their cross, they're going before Jesus, they've been proclaiming the gospel. Now here they are, mission over, they're coming back, they're standing before Jesus and you've experienced a lot of things. If you can put yourself in some of the shoes of the 72, I think these words would be apt to describe Maybe their feelings, their expectations, and what they experience, and these sorts of things. They would have seen highs, and they would have seen lows. They would be encouraged. They would be discouraged. There would be understanding about things that happened, and maybe confusion about things that didn't happen. There would be blindness. There would be sight on the part of people. They were proclaiming the gospel of peace to. They would have seen repentance on some, and they would have seen rejection from others, I think these feelings and these experiences are what these compassionate laborers experience, the 72, and these feelings and experiences are what any of us compassionate laborers will come across as we go about working for the Savior in the Father's harvest. I don't think these would be unique to the 72, but they will be unique if you've ever gone out shared the gospel, opened your mouth, proclaimed something. It's something that I think we need to be aware of that will be highs and lows and encouragements and discouragements that we will experience as we do this not only in our individual fields, but the collective field that we're going to enter into for our Jesus family. If you remember last week, Jesus sent out these 72 disciples. They went two by two. They went into every town where he was going. Now they are back. Luke doesn't tell us what happened necessarily. He doesn't give us like a detailed account of the minute by minute preaching ministry that these 72 missionary disciples were on. But as they went about as prayerful, fearless, urgent proclaimers of peace with God, it is obvious from some of these opening verses that they did witness some pretty incredible moments while they were out walking in obedience to the Savior. The implication of our text this morning is that just as they went out, they were not only received, but they were rejected by some. That just as Jesus said, some humbled themselves in childlikeness, recognizing we hear what you are saying and it is true about me and I need peace with God found in this Savior that you are proclaiming. And it's obvious that some did not. They hardened themselves against the gospel. They were wise and clever in their own eyes, not prudent 
to bow down before this Savior that you're talking about, and they puffed themselves up and would have rejected the gospel. But in the midst of the highs and lows and encouragements and discouragements and understanding and confusion and repentance and rejection, Jesus now assures these 72 disciples that not only was the Father sovereignly at work in it all, above it all, through it all, you need to know this, you weren't out there on your own, God the Father was right there working in and through it all, but what you also need to know, 72 disciples, is that as you went about your gospel proclamation, your gospel proclamation was beating back Satan's dark kingdom, amplifying his defeat that is going to be and has been accomplished at the cross. You need to know there's wasn't pointless. There was power on display when you were walking and proclaiming the gospel. And lest you lose sight of the fact, unless you and I lose sight of this fact, that when we go and we proclaim the good news of peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you need to know is you're not alone. The Father is with you just as he is there sovereignly ruling and reigning over the 72. What you need to know is that when you open your mouth and you speak to your neighbor around the family dinner table, when you're having family worship with your children, when you're talking to that neighbor, when you're speaking to the barista, when the Holy Spirit just opens a random door of opportunity and you take that opportunity to talk about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, that Satan's defeat is amplified every time because the only reason why people can have peace with God is because Jesus Christ was crucified, Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ was buried, and Jesus Christ crushed Satan to death by defeating death and coming out of the grave. And every time you open your mouth, it amplifies and proves that Satan has been defeated. You need to know that. There's power there. There's power in gospel proclamation. And so Jesus receives these disciples in joy. They come back stoked. The implication when verse 17 says the 72 returned with joy, it's not like they come back going, wow, we saw some sweet stuff. The idea is that they're coming out of their skin bursting with joy at what they saw. And Jesus, I think, receives them in joy But then he also is going to remind them and invite them to rest in a further unshakable joy. Not only that you saw Satan's defeat and shadows of what was going to come at the cross, but you need to know is your names are written in the book of life. And that is where our feet of faith, that's the foundation to rest on where true joy happens. And then we're going to see that this joy of the 72 stirs up Jesus' own joy at the Father's gracious will being accomplished. And it's the joy-laced reflection of Jesus on their gospel proclamation that actually helps us to reflect on the exact same kind of mission that you and I have. Because their mission wasn't unique just to them, it carries over to us according to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. So the way Jesus receives them in joy, reminds them to anchor joy in the salvation found in Christ alone and like what does it mean for the sovereign father to be at work and the parable of the good Samaritan, all these things. It's like we're getting a peek over the shoulder of Jesus and go, oh look, if that was true for them, it's actually true for you and it's true for me as well. So where does Luke lead us? 
He leads us here to point number one, starting in verse 17, where he begins by talking about the joy of the gospel. That's point one, the joy of the gospel, verses 17 through 20. The joy of the gospel. Look to how Luke begins, verse 17. Seventy-two disciples, unknown, unnamed, missionary disciples, returned with joy. There it is. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they recognize something there about Christ's power in them. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So in these opening verses, notice that our, in our text, the words joy and rejoice, they're just pinging all over the place. They show up four different times, amplifying this obvious theme of joy. The 72 disciples are sent by Jesus to go verbally proclaim the good news of peace with God. Peace with God that comes only through Jesus. Jesus who is the one who brings forgiveness of our sins. Luke tells us these disciples now return with joy. And they say to Jesus, when we were out doing what you've called us to do, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. They're seeing some incredible things as the power of the King of Kings is working in them and through them and actually affecting change in the lives of others. What is this? This is what I think it is. It's the joy of the gospel and proclamation. They went out and proclaimed, and as they proclaimed, their joy, if you want to say, was fueled and fanned into flame. Joy of their heart is linked to the fact that they're proclaiming the gospel. Preaching peace with God in Christ alone, casting out demons, these disciples rejoice with great joy as they get this foreshadowy taste of Christ's looming victory over Satan's dark kingdom. Remember, at this stage here, Christ has yet to go to the cross. He hasn't sealed the deal yet, so to speak. But what they're doing is they're getting a little thumbnail scratch. They're getting a little foreshadowy taste that what Jesus is going to do. Because remember, he's already told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But you got to know, I am going to defeat Satan, sin, and death by coming out of the grave after three days. And so Jesus is imparting to them the power to see that this kind of victory, what will it affect in the world to Today to get a little foreshadowy taste about it. Jesus' response to them after they say, demons subject to us in your name, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And his reminder to them, behold, remember, guys, I've given you this power. You're treading on serpents. You're treading on scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. When Jesus says these things, what are they? They are the promise of power over Satan through the proclamation of the gospel. This is vivid language that Jesus is using. Satan falling, you treading on these things. This is Jesus, the Savior, saying when you go proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that there is peace with God that can be had, secure, assured, right standing with God through repentance and faith in me, there is power in that proclamation, I was watching Satan fall. His def- 
feet. I was seeing it as you guys went out, proclaiming, 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 proclaiming. Friends, you've got to know this. Every time we proclaim the gospel, we declare Satan's defeat. Because what makes the good news good news? It's this. Satan has been defeated. He's not victorious. Christ is victorious. Inherent to the good news is this. It's good because Satan is defeated. Forgiveness can be had because Satan has been defeated. Redemption can be yours because death has been defeated. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, salvation, eternal life found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because Satan, sin, and death has been defeated. So inherent to you opening your mouth, Christian, is this. Whenever I do it, I'm inherently poking my fingers in the chest of the enemy, as it were, and we're saying, oh, by the way, you have no power anymore as you turn and you look to that neighbor and say, do you know that you can have peace with God? Christ is helping these disciples know this, and in subsequent manner, he's helping you and me remember this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... Back in Luke chapter 4, we caught the first glimpse that Satan's doom was sure. Fast forward to the cross, and there Satan's defeat was eternally secured. And in all of this, it is good and right to have joy as Christ-empowered disciples experience firsthand the victorious power of the cross. What these 72 needed to know is that through their gospel preaching, forgiveness for sin was being announced, the enemy's kingdom was being plundered, and Satan's defeat was being heralded. And today, what you and I need to know is that the same holds true for you and me. The implication here, I think, for us, like in an applicational sort of way, is this. Tomorrow morning, when you get up and your feet swing over the bed and your head lifts off the pillow, how are you? approaching the day are you approaching the day as one who is defeated or are you approaching the day as an ambassador of the one who has defeated everything see we have the opportunity to go out like the 72 in the power leaning into the power of the proclamation of the gospel because there are no bones in a Palestinian grave that belong to the man the Lord Jesus Christ and so you get to get up tomorrow as a missionary disciple heading into some field of harvest, recognizing that I get to go as his ambassador, and every time I have an opportunity provided by the Spirit just to simply say, can I pray for you? Can I point you to Jesus? Has anyone shared the gospel with you? Would you say you're near from God or far from God? Would you like to be near to God? I can show you how to be near to God. I can show you how to have peace with God. I can show you how to find redemption for your soul. I can show you how you can and find life eternal with Christ. Power, 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 power. Not because of you. Not because of me. But because of Christ in you. Christ in me. Power he displayed at the cross and in his resurrection speeds forward in the proclamation of the gospel on your lips. That's a different kind of mindset, is it not? 
getting up in the morning, not a defeated mindset, but a victorious mindset. Today, we need to know that the same kind of implications for these 72 holds true for us. In light of the cross and the victory won there by Jesus, the joy of the gospel and proclamation can be ours as we go in the knowledge, recognizing that as the gospel is proclaimed, Satan's defeat is declared. And that can happen for you, mom, dad, lawyer manager, supervisor, laborer, blue collar, white collar, number entry, carpenter, plumber, doesn't matter. You go, you go out, you are there representing Christ ambassador, missionary disciple. I'm in a field, I'm sowing gospel seeds and I'm sowing them knowing there is power in the proclamation of the gospel. God help us. Rearrange our mindset. It's not a mistake that the two sermon series leading into this as we continue in Luke was titled The Missionary Need and The Missionary Mindset. Lord, renew our mind to see these things are true of me, not because of me, because of Christ in me. Christ in me. Notice verse 20. Notice that the joy of the gospel is also in salvation. So you see the joy of the gospel in proclamation. They proclaim, they come back in joy, but Jesus is going to say something. He's reminding them about the joy of the gospel in salvation. And the joy of the gospel in salvation can only ever be the unshakable foundation of our joy. So Jesus is going to just, he's not, he's not rebuking them, I don't think. I think some might approach it in this way. Hey, you guys are stoked about this. How dare you? Your joy needs to be here. I think it's, I don't think it's that. I think Jesus is like, hey, it is good and right to be joyful about seeing the victorious gospel of the cross speed forward and plundering Satan's dark kingdom and pulling citizens of his kingdom out and transplanting them into the kingdom of the beloved. It's good to be stoked about this, but let your unshakable joy be rooted in this. Verse 20, do not rejoice in this, this being that you saw these sorts of things out there. Don't let that be the sole foundation of your joy. The spirits are subject to you, but, verse 20, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The ultimate thrill in our lives is not rooted in power given to us. The ultimate thrill in our lives is rooted in grace that's been given to us. We are grace men and we are grace women. And that's the thrill of our lives. This is the greatest cause for joy, says Jesus, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, he says. Not because I've earned it, not because I deserve it, but because the assurance of my eternal future has been secured and underwritten by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the fuel of joy in our lives. Friends, this is the joy of the gospel that missionary disciples can have. But notice, Jesus continues, and Luke continues. Notice how our joy gives way to the joy of Jesus who celebrates point number two, the blessing of spiritual sight. The blessing of spiritual sight. That's what you see in verses 21 through 24. Open your copy of Scripture. Look, verse 21. Notice how Luke writes, in that same hour he rejoiced. So the joy theme is continuing. In that same hour he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. What's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? 
Joy. Yeah, it's okay. You can speak up when I ask a question like that. Joy. So in the Holy Spirit, Christ rejoicing, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, joy. What does Jesus say in his joy? Again, this joy here isn't sort of a ho-hum joy. It's this exuberant, bursting, overflowing idea of joy. He says this, I thank you, Father. It's this idea of Jesus talking to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And I thank you that you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You need to know that verses 21 through 24 are, are deep. There's some, there's some heavy things being said by Jesus here. And so we're going to try to touch on them here. As the joy of Jesus erupts, notice in verse 21 that we catch a little Trinitarian glimpse. Jesus the Son is praying to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice the joy of Jesus is found in the Father's works. That's what you see in verses 21 and 22. The joy of Jesus is found in the Father's works. What are these works of the Father? It's that according to His gracious will, according to the Father's gracious will, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and He has revealed these things to little children. So the Father is at work in some way in the lives of people, hiding these things from some, revealing these things to others. Now it's important to ask the question and try to understand what are the these things? It's important to understand that the these things which have been hidden from some and these things which have been revealed to others are the things of the Father's saving kingdom found in Jesus. In other words, it's the things of peace with God through faith in Christ, the things of having one's name written in the book of heaven, verse 20. It's these that have been hidden from the wise and clever and been revealed to the humble. So if you stitch what Jesus is saying together, we learn that it is the Father's gracious will to hide these things from those who are wise in their own eyes, and it is the Father's gracious will to reveal truth to the humble. And so notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying something like, right, for those who are really intelligent, like if you have a really high ACT score, it's tough luck. The things of salvation are just going to be hidden from you. And actually what you need is like a kindergarten grade education because you're really childlike and you're really not intelligent. And that's how you get into heaven. This isn't a matter of like intelligence. It's a matter of the attitude of the heart. There are people highly intelligent who view themselves in their own eyes to be wise and understanding in regard to the things of the gospel. In other words, in their own eyes, they're too good. It's too large. It doesn't make sense. Very imprudent to have to admit that I'm wrong and submit to the scriptures and confess that I'm a sinner. But there's also people who are maybe less intelligent who are also wise and understanding in their own eyes. There's people who are extremely intelligent who are also very childlike who come to see through the proclamation of the gospel, this is me. 
and I need what you are saying. I am not wise in my own eyes. I'm not clever in my own eyes. I'm not over here right now reasoning my way out from underneath the implications of the gospel. No, I am here agreeing with the proclamation of the gospel that I need peace with God. I need the one who can bring this peace with God. I need my sins to be forgiven because God is holy. And if it's true that I am a sinner, then I am separated from him. And I need someone who can cover, forgive Redeem, acquit me before the eyes of God. Justify me, make me right with him. I agree with this, I see this. Jesus is saying those who come to see this are childlike. They're not children, they're not childish, they're childlike. They're humbling themselves, they're willing to see. I need what the gospel is saying I need. And so what Jesus is saying here is this, it's actually the Father's gracious will to reveal this truth to people and for those who hear and harden their hearts and reject, it's actually the Father who is hiding these things. They're being stiff-necked. They're hardening their heart. Too good, too proud, too wise, too clever. It's very unreasonable, this whole Jesus sort of thing. And so what Jesus is recognizing that in it all, in ways that I'm positive we don't fully understand, the Father's there hiding He's there revealing. And what we understand from what Jesus is saying is that it actually, it helps us. It helps the 72, it helps you and me. How does this help us? This helps us in gospel proclamation because understanding the sovereignty of God in missions means the pressure is actually off. Jesus, I think, is helping these 72 to understand when you were going and proclaiming, some were receiving, some were rejecting, what you need to know is that the God, God the Father, He is sovereign over all these things. Those people didn't reject because somehow, like you know, like there were supposed to be 10 points of the gospel presentation, you grabbed and hit all nine perfectly, but you forgot point number 10, that person rejected, and it's like, well, that's your, your fault. Like Jesus isn't saying, oh, it's your fault, Dan. You, you should have you remembered point number 10, but you didn't, so now they're going to hell. He's not saying that. The pressure's off. The Father is moving. He's sovereign in salvation. He's sovereign in missions. From a human perspective, we proclaim the possibility of peace with God through Jesus, and it will land with mixed results. But from heaven's perspective, no matter the response, we can confidently say, according to Jesus here in Luke 10, it's all according to the gracious will of the Father. What does this mean? It means His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, even in matters of gospel reception and matters of gospel rejection. And it's this which causes Jesus to rejoice in the Holy Spirit. See, if you look in verse 22, Jesus is the one with all authority. And since all things have been handed over to him by the Father... The truth of the matter is, according to Jesus, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. Jesus is saying here, he's giving us a little inside peek into this intimate, one-of-a-kind relationship that exists between Father and Son. God the Father, God the Son. And yet notice that on the back end of verse 22, there is this 
colossal conjunction. (laughs) That's such good news at the end of Jesus' statement. Notice what it says there in verse 22. Yes, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and. Colossal conjunction there. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, only the Son and no other knows who the Father is. But, should the Son choose to reveal the Father to you, choose to reveal the Father to me, choose to reveal the Father to anyone, then we will know the Father. We will know Him. Not know about Him, but know Him intimately. The no language that Jesus is using isn't like data on a spreadsheet, no. It's not, I can come to you and tell you the chemical formula makeup of honey kind of no. It's, I'm here to tell you that, yes, while I might be able to write out the formula, the chemical makeup of honey, and know honey in that way, there's a difference between knowing the chemical makeup of honey and then taking your finger, shoving it in the honeycomb, and putting it on your lip and saying, I know honey. Do you understand the difference? The way Jesus is talking about his relationship between father and son isn't chemical formula makeup of honey kind of no. It's the I've tasted and seen kind of no. There's an intimate knowing relationship there between father, son, son, father. And Jesus is saying that when eyes are opened as a result of gospel proclamation, it is possible, totally and entirely and fully possible for sinners to come and know the Father in the way the Son knows the Father through repentance and faith and salvation in Christ. You might be sitting here going, okay, I guess. But what does this mean? Here's what this means. This means because this is true, we pray. And we don't just pray, but we pray often and we pray pointedly. What are we praying? As we go into the harvest fields proclaiming the gospel of peace, we go pleading in prayer that hard human hearts would be humbled down into childlikeness to see their need for salvation in Jesus alone. We're begging God to open eyes so that they might know the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. There's a lot of people who go around saying, I know God, but they want nothing to do with the Son. Jesus is saying it is impossible to know the Father apart from the Son. The only way someone can know God in an intimate, saving, redeeming relationship is only through the Son. And so that's why when we go out, we had the little two-part sermon series, Missionary Need and Missionary Mindset. What was the missionary need? We need to be taught how to pray. Because when we go out into the harvest field, we're going out into the harvest field of people who do not know the Father like the Son knows the Father. And we want them to know the Father like the Son knows the Father. And you can come to know that through the power of gospel proclamation and begging in prayer, Lord, will you open their eyes to see? This is a lot of words. Let's dumb it down. Here's what it looks like. Why do you go out and share the gospel? Jesus calls us to, yes, but it's through gospel proclamation 
that people come to hear, believe, and be saved. Why do we pray? We pray because we need Jesus to open their eyes. We need Jesus to reveal to them their need for a right relationship with the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus, please, your kindness and your grace, open eyes. Open their eyes to hear, see, repent, and believe so that they might know the Father like you know the Father. That's the practical implications of this. Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, I, I told you guys this is heavy. I can see the look on your face. Some of you guys are like starting to sink in the depths here, okay? I understand. This is heavy stuff. But notice that Jesus transitions in 23 and 24. We see the joy of spiritual sight. That's what we're praying for. Lord, we want others to know the joy of seeing Jesus, believing Jesus, trusting in Jesus, knowing salvation in Jesus. Like we see and know and trust and believe. For those chosen by Jesus to see the Father, to come to him for his salvation, to receive his peace found in Christ alone, Jesus says they are more blessed even than the privileged prophets and kings of the Old Testament. You see that there, verse 24? For many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, did not see it. Hear what you hear, did not hear it. But you get to see it. You get to hear it. You get to taste and see it. And this is why we go and proclaim and pray. Now, all this leads into point number three. And we're going to approach the parable of the Good Samaritan more at a, at a higher level. If you want to hear, I've, I've preached on this a while back, just specifically looking at what we can learn about Christian neighborliness from the specific parable. But what you need to know is that in the context of Luke's argument right now, this isn't a parable. You can learn Christian neighborliness from this parable. But in the context of Luke's gospel, he doesn't just all of a sudden be like, hey guys, the 72 have returned, and hey everybody, I'm rejoicing in this spirit. And it just switches over and just throws in a parable all of a sudden. This parable is supporting truths we've seen in the two sections that we just approached. And that's why point number three leads us into the rejecting heart exposed. There's a rejecting heart that's at play before us. Verses 25 through 37 are some of the most famous verses in Luke, maybe quite possibly the Bible, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan's a pretty famous character. While this parable teaches us something about Christian neighborliness, like I said, it's not the ultimate point. The context, Luke seems to turn, to turn us to this parable because the lawyer, the religious lawyer, stood up to put Jesus to the test. And he, the lawyer, stands as a sample of those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. So do you see the context there? Verse 21 Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You've revealed them to little children. Someone might ask, well, what does that look like in real life? And Luke says, I've got an example for you. And he comes over and he says, notice the lawyer. Wise and understanding in his own eyes as it relates to the things of salvation. So we see that Jesus transitions to this conversation and then is going to teach a parable to help expose this man's rejecting heart. So notice in verse 25, the lawyer asked Jesus in order to put him to the test, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
it's important to see that he's not wrong in asking this. That's a good and right question to ask. Eternal life, how do you get it? I want it. It's a good thing. Yes, Jesus, I think, would say it's a good thing. But Jesus, I think, in sniffing out the test, turns the question back on the religious lawyer and asks him, what's written in the law? This is your area of expertise, so to speak. What does it say? How do you read it? Now, again, the religious lawyer shows he knows his Bible. He goes back and takes the 600-plus laws written in the Old Testament and sums them down to two. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. So there's the vertical aspect, right? We need to have a right relationship with God the Father. And then what you need to recognize is that overflows and the implication of that relationship rooted and grounded in grace and mercy and steadfast love that's been shown to us. It's meant to overflow out into the horizontals of life, loving neighbor as self. Love God, love neighbor. That's my answer to you, Jesus, about this whole eternal life kind of thing. Notice in verse 28, Jesus doesn't say, you big fool, you got it wrong. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. You got it right. But the command from Jesus after you have answered correctly, when Jesus says to him, do this and you will live, I think the do this part of the do this and you will live exposes the disconnect of this man's rejecting heart. How so? It's like this. While the lawyer knows the correct Bible answer to his question, he is not doing or acting on what he knows. So Jesus says, you have it right here. But if we were to sort of look at the checkbook of your life, so to speak, over the past week, months, years, what will become evident is this. What you know to be true here is manifestly lacking in your life. Wise and understanding in his own eyes, the lawyer knows the right answer to give to Jesus because he knows his Bible after all. But just because the lawyer knows what is right does not mean he is doing what is right. So there is a difference between knowing and doing, and that is Jesus' point. He's interacting with a real human soul in front of him right now. We gain insight that this is at the center of the lawyer's rejecting heart because look at verse 29. Luke tells us that he was desiring to what? Justify himself. He knows what's going on in his own heart. There's something going on at play where he knows, but he's not doing. And so he's going to try to wiggle out from underneath the implications of what he just said. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? He's not asking the question, who is my neighbor, so he can get specific with his love. Love God, love neighbor. Can you, can you show me who it is? Because I, I really desire to go do this. No, Luke gives us insight that the reason why he's doing this is because he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to make excuses for why it's okay that he does not do what he knows to be true. He wants to wiggle out from beneath the command, but Jesus concentrates on showing him that Judging himself by his own doctrine, he, the lawyer, does not have life. He's showing him that he's actually very lost. In other words, by the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying this. Ultimately, listen, friend, 
If loving your neighbor as yourself has anything to do with eternal life, it is clear that you do not have life for you do not love. Jesus isn't saying go love a neighbor then boop, punched heaven's ticket. But the principle here at play is this. If someone truly has Love for God because God first loved them, has a right relationship with God because God in grace and mercy has acted toward this sinner and has made this sinner right with himself. The Bible is pretty replete that you will see evidence of that in their life. And the lawyer is standing here trying to wiggle out, wiggle out from beneath the implications that should be seen in his life trying to justify himself because he knows it's love, God, love, neighbor, but there's lack of love in his life for neighbor. And so Jesus is helping him see you have right answers here, but you lack fruit in your life. And so I'm turning your own doctrine onto you and helping you to examine yourself because I want you to see that if loving your neighbor as yourself, as you were right to say, has anything to do with giving evidence for the fact that you do truly have right standing with the Father, thus you truly do have eternal life, then it is clear by your lack of love for neighbor and your willingness to justify yourself to wiggle out from beneath this is that you do not have what you think you have. Thus the good Samaritan stands not so much as a good example to follow, but as a heart exposing invitation to the lawyer to come to Jesus in total despair. The lawyer doesn't necessarily need a lesson on neighborliness. The lawyer needs a lesson in seeing your words are right. The lack of fruit in your life is concerning. And I'm showing you this good Samaritan to see your lack. So this is just pure invitation. Come to me in childlike humility and find the eternal life you say you want to inherit. Friends, what is this? The same invitation stands before you and me today. Stands before you and me today. Come to Jesus and inherit eternal life. Come to Jesus and inherit eternal life life. Come to Jesus who has done everything that needs to be done to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Why? So that the spiritually impoverished might inherit eternal life. So that moral failures might inherit eternal life. So that religious hypocrites might inherit eternal life. So that self-righteous do-gooders might inherit eternal life. Moral failure, you can have eternal life. Religious do-gooder, you can have eternal life. Religious hypocrite, you can have eternal life. Spiritually dead, you can have eternal life. Spiritually blind, you can have eternal life. Being wise and understanding in your own eyes, no. Humbling yourself. Childlikeness. Coming before the Father through the Son, and saying, I see this. Christ alone is my only hope of salvation. Jesus, save me.
scriptures are absolutely clear. The one who comes in childlike humility to the Father in this way will be saved. Praise God. Any of us here who can say, I'm right with God, at some point in time, this has happened to you. Praise God. This is what working for the Savior does. Exposes us to great joy, exposes us to the blessing of having our... Like, you didn't come to see that because you're phenomenally intelligent. You came to see that because Jesus... Whoa! Opened our, do you guys remember when Christ first opened your eyes to your need for a Savior? Does anybody remember this? Yeah, show of hands. Like, you were running the hellbound race... Very happy, full dead sprint. I am running to hell. You weren't saying that, but you were doing it. Then Jesus in his kindness says, not today, Satan. Bam! Pulls you off, turns you around, and flings you in the other direction by his sovereign grace. Do you remember this? That's what we're, that's what we're seeing here this morning. And in that moment when Christ intervened in your life and shot the trajectory of your life in a direction you never thought it was going to go, you didn't stand up in that moment and go like, well, I'm very thankful that I'm highly intelligent and obviously good-looking too, just want everyone else to know that because I'm the one who came and made the decision. And no, 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 no. Christ intervened. Christ saved. Christ opened. Christ redeemed. And our right response in that moment was to receive and believe. And guess what? Childlike humility. That's what we pray for. Okay? I love you guys. This was a heavier, heavier content kind of sermon. I grasp this. It's warm up here. At least it's warm up from the pulpit. So thank you for paying attention here. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to pray. Um, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do these things in our hearts and our minds. And then Brady's going to come up and we're going to respond rightly um, in the Lord's Supper, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for doing these things. It is your gracious will. That's just what we see here in scriptures. It's your gracious will, sovereign and mission. You're always at work. You're doing great and mighty things. You're in the business of saving sinners. And so, Lord, help us to remember that so that as we go and we bump into reception and rejection and regards to the things of the gospel, Lord, would you just help us to remember you're sovereign, you're at work, you're moving and working in your world. May this bolster us, fuel us all the more to be men and women of prayer, asking that eyes would be opened so that gospel-rejecting hearts would turn and become gospel-receiving hearts. Lord, you did this in my life, and you did this in the life of many others, and we ask that you would continue to do it in the lives of those in our individual fields, and you would continue to do this in the lives of the collective field around us. Speed ahead of us, King Jesus. Go before us, prepare the road, as it were, prepare the harvest fields, make them ripe and ready for your harvesters as we go. Christ Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen.